Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways, which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt from Mr Putin. I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think I know. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. G'day and welcome to ANU's Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian Studies Institute at ANU and the School of Politics and International Relations. Now, among the many things that come out of ANU is regular research data from the Centre for Social Research and Methods. In the last few days, the CSRM, as we call it, has produced a report called Hangovers and Hard Landings, Financial Wellbeing and the Impact of COVID-19 and the infl- and inflationary crises, or the inflationary crisis. Um, one of its authors, Professor Nick Biddle, is with me in the studio. Hi, Nick. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to Democracy Sausage. Good to um, be back. Um, always good to talk to you. Also with me is Dr. Intifar Chowdhury. Uh, she's also with CSRM, and uh, and I think it's fair to say, Inti, that you're a youth researcher. Yes, absolutely, Mark. Thanks for having me. And not your first time on Democracy, Democracy Society, though, if I could actually say Maybe second or third time. We're not sure yet. Yeah, right. We're not good with numbers. <laughs> no, we're not good with numbers. <laughs> um, Nick, let's, let's begin, if we can, by if you could just sort of outline what this uh, this report is, um, you know, in, in sketch out what it is and and I guess how it how, how you've gathered this data. Yeah, so one of the reasons, one of the kind of previous experiences on Democracy Sausage was talking about the COVID nineteen impact uh, and how that's kind of uh, affected people's well being, their financial outcomes. Um, so what we did at, at kind of the start of uh, the the pandemic was um, we interviewed about a little over three thousand Australians. We thought it'd be uh, a very short pandemic. We'd do a couple of surveys, we'd be done, and we'd get on with the rest of our lives. Yeah. Um, we're obviously wrong. Uh, so what we've been doing is tracking a representative sample of Australians uh, from just prior to the pandemic uh, through the first couple of years. Uh, and then we continue to track those individuals uh, kind of post I guess to the extent which we are post-pandemic and into, I guess what is more of a uh, an economic kind of crisis or at least an inflationary crisis. So in August 2023, we ran the most recent kind of wave of data collection. Uh, we had a little under four and a half thousand Australians uh, ask them a range of questions, including their attitudes to to democracy and attitudes towards a range of questions, but also tracking their well-being outcomes. Um, so what we have is about you know 16 or 
17 waves of data, depending on the measure which we're using, across a three and a half year period, where we can really see how the pandemic impacted on people's outcomes, how different economic conditions out impacted on people's outcomes, uh, and how it's kind of affecting people's subjective well-being, um, their views on their own lives, the views on the country, the views on the government, and yeah, and and how that kind of varies across the population as well. So, as you mentioned, Inti's done a lot of work on kind of how these, how uh, kind of political attitudes and, and other attitudes vary across kind of age cohorts uh, and generations. Uh, we also look at how it varies by education levels, by region, all those things to really get a picture of of how people have been tracking through time. Yeah. So let's just sort of be pretty clear about this because it's it's a, it's a difference in methodology from the kinds of polls that a lot of people would read from time to time in the major uh, mastheads, yep. you know, um, news poll and uh, uh, the Resolve uh, political monitor yep. that comes out in what used to be the Fairfax papers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is different. This is the same, essentially the same cohort. Yeah. So, so we do have kind of uh, replenishment of the cohort. So people yep. drop out, people um, you know, get sick of doing surveys. Uh, yeah. And so we do make sure that we top up the the sample as we're going. Um, but yeah, what we're really focused on is we try and get kind of a best estimate possible for a particular point in time. And, That's then, and you're interested well. in tracking. Exactly. Yeah. We're, we're really interested in tracking not only in the aggregate, but also at the individual level, people's outcomes. So you can use kind of repeated cross sections to see how Australia looks and how it tracks through time. And that's kind of what NewsPoll does. You know, at, at each point in time, how would people vote? And then another point in time, how would a different set of people vote? And that's really interesting. It's important. But what we're really doing is saying, okay, for this person, uh, have they switched from voting for Labor compared to the coalition? Uh, has this individual, has their outcomes gotten worse? Uh, and we think that that adds something uh, different. Yeah, uh, it does. And, yeah. It, and it allows us to answer questions which the standard polling doesn't really allow. Yeah, so the standard polling works on on randomised groups. I mean, exactly. they weight them to make sure they have a representative sample and geographically and, and demographically um, uh, by age cohort mm -hmm. and so forth. Uh, so weighting is important, but they essentially are doing randomised surveys and from that extrapolating a nationwide result. Yeah, uh, so that, so they get a new sample every time. Yeah. Uh, that's the difference. Yeah. So and and that can have benefits because the as I mentioned, some people you know, they, they get sick of doing surveys, so they drop out. Uh, and that's not random. So that's people who drop out are different to those who stay. And we do as best we can to you know, replace those with a, a like for like and to kind of adjust as best we can. But they don't allow kind of individual level tracking. So it, it sometimes you can get this picture of, of kind of stability. Like if you look at news poll, it looks like, you know, uh, Labor's, you know, it fluctuates a little bit, but it looks like, you know, 52, 48, 57, 43, or whatever, the, yeah. whatever adds up to 100. 53, 47, uh, whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and it looks like things are quite stable, but really like every time we do a survey, about 20% of people change their votes. That's just within a, a two or three month period. And those who change their votes are different. And, and, and perhaps do it for different reasons, not all exactly. for the same reason, yeah, and not yeah. all in the yeah. same direction. Exactly. And, and, and kind of when you, when you just have repeated cross sections, you kind of miss those dynamics. Mm. Um, and also I think people's 
kind of individual level trajectories it can tell you something about their 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 decision making it might be voting and might be attitudes towards a particular policy issue so if you know someone has had a negative experience in the past or say if you know what their attitudes towards vaccines were in the early 2000 early 2020s uh, then that might predict their their voting behavior two or three years down the track and you can ask them but you know to be honest do you remember what your attitudes were towards issues two or three years ago um, well, I certainly do about vaccines sorry. I was absolutely <laughs> for them sure <laughs> uh, and uh, and and some people you know you can you can kind of have reasonable recall if your if your views are stable but yeah, it it's it's hard to remember. Like, um, and and it's even hard to remember things like uh, your uh, how many hours you worked in a particular week, mm. uh, or you know what your income was at a particular point in time. Some people's lives are more stable; others are to be more contingent. So, I don't know if uh, when you kind of go to apply for a, a passport or something, where you're asked to to list your residences uh, over the last few years, or those countries you've travelled to, uh, and you think, oh, that's easy to remember, uh, and <laughs> it's actually really hard to to it's kind of really your life. Yeah, uh, yeah. And that's I remember why- going into into Russia one time many years ago for um, uh, when the PM was traveling there and you had to list the, mm. all of the countries you'd been yep. to in the last 10 years, which in, in because of my line of work was a lot. Yep. And, 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 you know, see, it, it took a long time uh, sort of trying to go through the passport and read these faded stamps this that have sometimes stamps. been smudged as they've been put on and they just put on randomly through mm-hmm. the thing. And, and, you, and you think you're... Uh, I uh, suspect we, they, they had no way of checking and you could have written down anything, but exactly you kind right. of do it conscientiously. Yeah, like if, if you think, well, if they know... Then why are they asking? And if yeah. they don't know, it doesn't matter if I'm correct. But there's probably yeah. some in between where they do know and they want to make sure that, that you're telling yeah. the truth, but especially if you're going to Russia. You just don't <laughs> want to fall foul of that exactly. kind of officialdom. It's yeah, yeah. not noted for its uh, tolerance or no. uh, you know goodwill yeah. at its heart. Look, just before we go to Inti, just on, on, on sort of one of the most sort of fundamental findings, and I suppose this is no great surprise given the discourse we have, given the other polling mm. data we have and the, and the way it reflects in our politics and given our own lived experience. And that is something somewhere approaching about a third of respondents, and assuming that's reflective yep. of the of the of the country, about a third of Australians, adult Australians, are, are either having a difficult time or a very difficult yep. time as a result of the economic circumstance at the moment. That's that's the finding, yeah. isn't it? About third, just a bit over thirty percent. Yeah. So, uh, it, and in in August it was a little over thirty percent. In in April it was a little bit higher than that. But in general, this year around about a third of Australians were finding it difficult or very difficult on their current income. And you think, well, okay, well, how does that? Uh, it's it's often hard to to kind of contextualize what that means. Uh, so what we were able to do is is say okay, well pre-COVID it was it was about a quarter, a little over twenty six percent. So compared to kind of the pandemic, people are more financially stressed now. And you think okay, well what about uh, in the early stages of the pandemic when businesses were closing, uh, hours were being cut? Well, actually we found that there was substantially lower financial stress kind of in the in the early stages of of the pandemic. And that's partly because people had less to spend their money on, but it was also because the government, at least in in the first year, provided a lot of financial support, particularly for those at the lower end of the income distribution. Um, so, it well, was- it, this is a really interesting point because I I, I remember uh, covering this, you know, the GFC back in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, mm-hmm. and. 
the lived experience for a lot of people, even though it was called the global financial mm. crisis, at least that's what it was called in Australia. It was called the the, the, Great, the Great Recession, Recession. Yeah, yeah. In, in the Northern Hemisphere, generally speaking. But um, in Australia, because of our uh, particular you know sort of relationship with China and the the booming Chinese economy, and because of some very progressive thinking by the government to, to uh, protect the economy from recessionary forces. The lived experience for a lot of people was actually mm. that they were better off. Yep. Yeah. You know, there was there was cash being given to them and there was uh, all kinds of uh, in, investment going in to simulate the economy, the school halls program and a range of other things. And for the most part, because we didn't have recession, a lot of people were better off. And I think it's probably also true, as you say, with the um, – with the pandemic in those in those early months and 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 year and a half of it, I suppose you're talking about, you know, doubling the dole for some mm. of that time. So job seekers worth twice what it was. Mm. Job keeper was, of course, you know, untold billions just yep. tipped into the economy, not with a great deal of uh, accountability about it, as we as yep. we now know. But uh, and and as you say, I mean, it's like. You couldn't travel into, could you? So you weren't spending your money on overseas holidays or whatever. In fact, you couldn't basically do much at all. Didn't even have to go to work for the most part. You, had, you know, you were working from home, and so even your travel costs were down. Yeah. So this was for during the pandemic, right? Yeah. 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 I was having a fantastic time. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't have to spend. Um, I actually ended up saving mm. more. Yeah. Um, and I came out of the pandemic more economically happy. Yeah, in a sounder position. Yeah. Yeah. Then, yeah. then before. Uh, now it's a different story altogether. So mm. I could resonate with Nick's uh, next report. Yeah. Are you are you um, surprised at all about that finding of um, around a third of people doing it tough now though? Because uh, I suppose we talk about we're talking about these two things: the pandemic and this post-pandemic period. Yeah. Um, the, the the inflation crisis, as I suppose we'd call yep. it, which is been responded to with high interest rates and 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 the hardships that that has brought. Uh, but we're talking about them as two separate things. But in a way, there's a, there's a cumulative impact, both psychologically, which we can come to, but but of also course. just that in some ways they're not really separated for a lot of people, are they? If you're on the periphery of the housing market, yeah. renting um, or trying to buy or doing both. I mean, it, there obviously are a number of factors and individual cases. Cases are different based on individuals, but I, I wasn't surprised with, with Nick's findings from the August um, ANU poll and also from my own lived experiences and that of my peers and stuff that I'm seeing around. It, it, it has been difficult in the post-pandemic world because of a number of reasons. Obviously, rates rising, you've got inflation, and then you've also, at the same time, um, the energy crisis in Europe yeah. has had a, a great impact in Australia. I do remember about a year ago, there was uh, petrol prices were all crazy. Yeah. But now we're kind of like, oh, this is the norm. It's yeah. high, high petrol prices is the norm. Uh, but also like everyday life stuff, you know, buying a kilo of broccoli is is more expensive than it used to be just last year. Mm. So I think Australians are feeling the pinch. I wasn't surprised, actually. I, I would have thought it would be more. Uh, but well, you had to take a loan, take out a loan to get a lettuce at one stage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, uh, or potatoes. Yeah. Uh, was, you know, and, and that's the thing. There's, there's been a number of 
uh, kind of individual items which have you know really increased in prices and and it's you know, obviously some people their their wages have kept up but for a number of people who are on more fixed incomes or or whose kind of income uh, hasn't increased at the same rate then yeah those those price increases you know, make it really hard and and I think it's it's interesting can you mention petrol uh, but yeah. yeah there's things there's certain kind of expenditure which is yeah. you know, really salient and and also really hard to to avoid yeah uh, like, yeah it's not they're not discretionary costs no. Particularly the further you live from the centre of the city, yeah, from yeah. where you work, uh, particularly if you don't work in the centre of the city and you have to go um, yeah. uh, cross suburban or if you're in the regional areas or whatever. I mean, the, you know, private having your own transport is, is a fixed costly. cost, right? And a fixed and unavoidable cost. Absolutely. And people are really feeling that. Inti, one of the, thing, the other things that um, I found interesting from the report was that the, um, the hardest circumstance or the cohort reporting the hardest circumstances is the 35 to 54-year-olds, but fairly closely followed by people under 35. Yeah. I suppose that's not really surprising, is it? Because in a lot of cases, that 35 to 54-year-old group is going to contain a lot of people who are renting, a lot of people who are trying to enter the housing market or yeah. who have just entered the housing market and whose yeah. toehold there is precarious. Yeah. And under 35s, even more so in both of those categories, in both those senses. Yeah, well, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that younger Australians uh, are or will be um, bearing the brunt of this inflationary crisis uh, and uh, rates rise and rise in prices and stuff. It's it's again, as you mentioned, Mark, over 35 are people who are trying to get into the housing market, and and we know that it's it's a different story altogether. The the housing affordability crisis, the renting crisis. Under 35s are renting, but also grappling with uh, issues like not having a permanent job with the casualization of the labor market. I think that's the generation that's really in a precarious position with uh, not having a permanent position, not having um, working in multiple casual jobs. In some cases, people are staying back at home longer than they used to. And because of that... As in staying with their parents, you mean? Staying with yeah. their parents or boomeranging back to parental homes because of the housing crisis. Yeah. Um, I would go as far to say that there are more under 35s who think that home ownership is out of reach completely. And and they're they're grappling with rental increase, which which is it just keeps on rising and it, it's it's difficult. And then on the on the other hand, you've got people who do get a sort of a foot in the door and start to more. You know, myself for example, I bought my first apartment and I thought life would be easier. I wouldn't have to rent anymore, and I can just be like, "Whew, it's over now." But with the mortgage came a fresh set of you know, just looking at. Um, RBA and and RBA going uh, a fresh set of anxieties. <laughs> a fresh yeah. set of anxieties there because you never know. Every time I get a, a letter from the bank saying there is a message, I think my heart skips a beat. <laughs> I just mm. go like, no, I'm not ready for this. Yeah, um, those letters never, very rarely say anything. They're good. not good news, no. No, <laughs> but then you can just never win, right? It's either you're a renter or or you're mortgaging. You can't. I don't know. I just get this. I'll start whinging now. No, no, no. Whinging's fine. I think there's. I think there's a the very legitimate whinge to be had here. Yeah, and and I think about how and uh, we joke over at um, in in the center. Me and my colleagues, we joke about how six figures isn't cutting it, mm-hmm. and we think about the average Australian where they're earning somewhere around seventy sixty five to seventy thousand. How difficult must it be for them? 
right? And I think we can sympathize there. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's some there's some harsh realities. They don't, uh, as we all well know, they don't hit equally all people. Mm. They they differential um, of uh, effects. Let's take a very quick break and come back uh, and continue our discussion. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com when the wind veered the smoke was driven backwards revealing a most amazing scene Standing Columns of Fire. To Be Continued is a new podcast that explores the rich world of lost literary fiction from Australia's past. It helps you to understand the way in which knowledge is kind of not something that's out there waiting to be discovered, but it's something that you create. To Be Continued is brought to you by the Australian National University and is available now on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back. You're on Democracy Society. I'm talking with Nick Biddle and Intifar Chowdhury. Uh, Nick, just before the break, uh, Inti was talking about those age groups, the uh, 35 to 54s and the under under 35s and, the, and what your uh, data points to there. Yeah, so it's really interesting that the the dynamics a little bit different to the kind of the levels. So, um, kind of Inti talked about uh, kind of renters and and a home and those on a mortgage, uh, and in our data we certainly find that those who are renting are the most likely to to mm. say they've kind of finding it difficult in the current income. Um, not surprisingly, if you own your own house, own, own your own house outright, you're doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways, kind of higher interest rates can help with uh, bigger returns on savings. Yeah, but the the last largest increase in financial stress has been amongst mortgage holders. So there's been kind of a bit of a convergence between those who have a mortgage uh, and get that letter in the in the post or in the email from their bank and then those who are renting. So it's really- This, this is the double whammy of economic orthodoxy, isn't it? Essentially, yeah. because what, what's happening here, right, is that inflation needs to be tamed. Mm. That is yeah. high prices. So those people are like everyone else. They're buying groceries. They're, they're yeah. filling the car up, all those things. So they're paying higher prices. And because that inflation is a problem for the economy, the answer is mm. to jack up interest rates, yep. which is their other big fixed cost to try and yep. bring down those those costs. So if you're a mortgage holder in that sense, now that doesn't mean that if you're a renter, you're insulated from that because no. your rent may go up as well. Yeah, exactly. So so those who are kind of la- landlords will pass on the, the increase uh, onto renters. If they can. Yeah. If they can, yeah, yeah, sure. And and I think also, I mean, one of the things I guess about renters is for a proportion, it's, it's not just kind of paying your current living costs. There's a number of people who are obviously trying to save for a deposit on a house. And, and yeah. that can be kind of double-edged sword as well. So is if interest rates go up, then your savings do increase a little bit as well. But I think that's far outweighed by the the need to try and put away some money while you're paying for kind of extra extra on broccoli or, or potatoes yeah. or whatever the case may be yeah. that week. Yeah. What about uh, – you mentioned there uh, about um, people who, for example, own their own house outright. It brought to mind another group, which is the people who are um, – in these cases, th- this may be these people in mm. some cases, superannuants, people yep. who have significant 
nest eggs from uh, from a life of working and and saving there. Um, they've probably done well by virtue of returns in their funds, mm. yeah. but then there are others uh, in in the groups we've just been talking about who might have been tempted to draw on their superannuation to get through this hard period. Are you find do you have findings there? Yeah, so that, that so on, kind of on both, we certainly do see some evidence for that. We certainly find that those who have substantial savings, um, you know, low interest rates are bad for that group, uh, mm-hmm. and your know, high interest rates uh, can. Um, you know, leaving aside the inflation, but the, the direct effect of, of interest rate rises can be beneficial for a number of people. But we do find that there's a number of financial actions which people kind of have been taken to mm. to kind of manage the the financial crisis. Um, and uh, one of the things we've been able to do is is kind of track how these things have varied over the pandemic period. So early on in the pandemic, there was a lot of people who you know drew down on super, and that was because of a change in the in the rules uh, and you know, go, go into debates about whether that was an effective policy or not. But over the last uh, at least uh, six months or so, there's been a slight increase uh, in the number of people who are drawing down in their super compared to kind of early in the year. Well, in early in the pandemic, uh, so in the first year, there was 13, a little, little over 13.5% of people um, kind of draw down uh, on their super. That then declined uh, into early 2023, looking back over the 12 months leading up to that. And then there was a slight increase again from 5.9 to 7.2, uh, as you mentioned. And while that's not large, it certainly is an, is an indication that there is a proportion of people who are needing to, to draw extra funds. Um, but actually the biggest uh, kind of steps, or the most common steps uh, which people have taken is, is you know, spending less on essential items. Mm. Uh, so we found that under a little under 60%, so 57% of people said that they spent less on groceries and essential items in the previous 12 months than than they had before. And when you think about it, that's like um, a very large proportion of people who are looking for ways to you know to spend less mm-hmm. uh, in order to kind of cover the declines in real income. And this is not kind of luxury items. Uh, this is people saying they've spent less on groceries and and essential items. Uh, there's way and and there's there's kind of limits to which to what you can do that. Uh, yeah, and, there, um, there would be. I mean, uh, you, you, like you, you say, they're, they're essential. Food, yeah, that's yeah, what essential yep. means. <laughs> Yeah, and and certainly people can find ways to smooth their income for a short period of time, uh, and I guess that's one of the reasons why um, the RBA has has gone you know, reasonably hard in terms of of kind of uh, interest rate rises. Is is that if you if you can bring inflation down quickly, then then uh, people are able to you know draw down on savings, smooth their income, smooth their consumption a little bit. It's when kind of inflation takes hold and when it it becomes kind of a, a baked into people's decisions yeah. when it it becomes much harder for people to manage. Yeah, and it's interesting. The Reserve Bank's meeting, I think. Today, as we record this, uh, and uh, at least theoretically, could be uh, going further with interest rates. Although there seems to be a consensus that that won't be the case, mm. and that's because there's been some pretty encouraging news on yep. the inflation front in terms of the fall mm. in uh, the rate of growth of prices. Uh, so perhaps the orthodoxy is working. But all of those things, indeed, that Nick's has been talking about. I mean, yeah. that's that's the that's the object of high interest rate policy is to essentially take demand out of the economy to 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 lower consumption to yeah. uh, therefore uh, have people deciding making decisions about how much they spend so yeah. that they um 
so that the inflationary pressure comes down. But of course, you know, in the micro, that's hard for people, isn't oh, it? Oh, it's absolutely hard. I can't help but quote a friend who says, Man, austerity measures, I had to go down from four-ply four toilet <laughs> rolls to two-ply <laughs> toilet rolls. And uh, I can totally relate with uh, with what Nick finds yeah. in this report. Nick, I can't help but question in terms of financial steps that people are taking. Um, what about refinancing yep. mortgages or negotiating, I don't know, utility bills, etc.? What do you find in your... Yeah, so it's it's interesting because it is... I mean, one of the the policy goals of both the current government yeah. and the previous government uh, has been to make it easier for people to to switch banks, yeah. uh, to switch kind of telecommunication telecommunications companies. Yeah. Uh, and we do see some evidence for that. So we yeah. see a um, there's quite a large increase in the proportion of people who are able to renegotiate their bills, mm-hmm. a large-ish increase in uh, the proportion of people who could renegotiate kind of the mortgage, but it's not easy. Uh, no. And uh, I think one of the challenges in the Australian economy is is that you there are often only a couple of kind of suppliers of of goods and services. So yeah. it's hard to renegotiate if there's not competition. So if the if one arm of government, so the RBA, is is kind of increasing interest rates, trying to to dampen down demand, uh, then I think a com- complementary part of that is 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 for government to help support kind of people to kind of make those make those changes and make those choices mm. uh, and it's still hard but we do see in our data um that you know a, a, a about one in five people were able to renegotiate bills that's a in some ways, it's mm. a negative because it's kind of indication of that, you know, that's mm. one of the last things you do, I guess. Uh, yeah. But it is a positive in that people are able to to kind of shop around and and maybe uh, kind of have a little bit of consumer power. And the more consumer power I think people have, uh, the less likely some of these blunter instruments are to have kind of real kind of devastating effects on on people. Yeah. Yeah, that's a sort of a cash flow issue mm. in a way, isn't it, uh, that the, the People might be able to take some measures to uh, reduce the immediate call yep. on on their limited financial resources, and perhaps later on be able to handle those uh, those more effectively. And we, we had a lot of talk about that in the, uh, particularly during the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, of banks saying, you know, if you're struggling, talk to us. Um, and since then, in this high interest rate environment, talk to us, and mm-hmm. we'll see what we can do. I, I I've always been vaguely cynical about mm. that, I must say. I mean, mm. I, th- I think, you know, there are things people can do and there are things people can do with their energy bills and sure. and the like. But, um, you know, at core, uh, th- these are just some very high prices and they're fixed, they're fixed costs for people. And um, for the most part, they're, they're going to be, you know, either costs they have to carry down the track or, or, or sort of relatively marginal gains. And, and you also, I think, need to remember that some people have much more power and much more um, a kind of ability to negotiate mm. uh, those things. So yeah. if someone's kind of been has got a very large mortgage with a bank uh, and uh, has a very high income, uh, then the bank's going to see what they can do to to accommodate uh, someone who's able to negotiate the system uh, reasonably well, um, able to jump online, use the comparisons, and uh, they're able, I think, better able to to make those adjustments. The, the challenge is that there's others who who don't necessarily have the the the, the, the same 
kind of bargaining position in uh, when it, with regards to to kind of businesses and also i think just not the 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 confidence or the ability yeah, to yeah. to work within what is a really tricky and challenging yeah. kind of financial and it's system. an important thing to say it's an important point to make i think um because too often there's this kind of underlying assumption that doesn't get stated but this underlying assumption that we're all equal in these mm. sorts of things but yeah. but but people who are in disempowered situations who have always been on the the sort of receiving end of um you know banks and mm. uh, and and utility companies and the like you know tending to live hand to mouth week to week um may not may not in all cases uh, in many cases uh, feel like they've got the kind of mm. wherewithal to you know, to make these adjustments to yeah. take them on, and they they may not have an afternoon to sit on a sure. on yeah, a phone yeah. line as or well. They or they may not know that that's something that can be yeah, done. Yeah. And think about a family with three or four kids, and they don't have the time for yeah. job. Yeah. How are you going to? Uh, how are you going to set out one hour to be? Like mm. on the phone with I don't know Energy Australia trying yeah. to get fifteen percent off. That's going to. I don't know, save you like three coffees. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not an insignificant amount in some yeah. cases, but um, but you're right. It's a it's a an easier thing to talk about in principle than it might be for mm. people to do in practice in, in many circumstances, particularly if they don't have Wi-Fi and mm. these kinds of things, access to the internet, and in ways that are sort of broadly regarded as essential nowadays yep. to function in the, in the economy. Mm. What about Nick the um the, the sort of psychological aspects mm. of the way these two uh, these two bookends of crisis in a sense the pandemic and then the high interest rate high inflation environment have operated uh, essentially one running into mm. the other. How much of the sort of psychological stress are you able to um, measure here and and how much of it is, in a sense, cumulative? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a really good point. So, so there's someone's you know, previous experience is is going to impact how they're affected by kind of contemporary circumstances. So there's a kind of couple of of interesting dynamics when it comes to, I guess, broadly mental health and well-being during the pandemic. Um, one is that. Older Australians have and still have uh, kind of lower levels of psychological distress now uh, than, pre than prior to the pandemic. And that gap was even larger early on. So it has, from a kind of mental health perspective, it's, it has had a very different effect across the age distribution. Um, so we found in our data early on in the pandemic, uh, younger Australians, particularly those age, uh, younger adults aged 18 to 24, not only started off with higher levels of psychological distress, but also had a greater deterioration. There was some convergence uh, through time, but once again, as, as we've kind of moved from a kind of locked down uh, restriction type impact to a economic impact it has once again kind of impact on impacted on younger Australians more than than others partly because of uh, as, as Inti was talking about because of there has been a larger financial hit but also I think because there is that cumulative experience mark as you mentioned of of if you've kind of gone through a you, you've got um, early on in the pandemic the, the the standard things which young adults do they travel they go to university they mm. they start uh, meeting new new colleagues uh, in face to face work face to face work that hasn't occurred uh, yeah. and so they don't haven't had the opportunity to build up some of those social networks or some some of those support structures mm. which might um, help manage. Uh, what's now an economic uh, kind of impact? Yeah, there there has been a delayed transition to adulthood for people who are 
um, leaving school as well during the pandemic and also people who were trying to find their first job during the pandemic. So that kind of delayed their entire trajectory, which I'm sure adds, uh, Nick, to the to the uh, psychological distress or the ongoing distress mm-hmm. from the pandemic to now to uh, an inflationary period or uh, grappling with uh, rates rises and cost of living crisis. And uh, what about the sort of how, how this plays into now, just in the sort of final part of our discussion, how this plays into political dynamics with which we are all aware? I mean, yep. the country is currently in the throes of a officially the campaign mm. for this voice referendum. Um, it, it feels like there's a lot of rancor and division around. Um, mm. Some of it is uh, the um, leveraging of these cost of living pressures um, and anxieties around precarious work and everything else against uh, against this notionally symbolic thing. Mm. So we've had uh, members of the opposition, lots in the, the conservative commentariat, talking about uh, the government needing to focus on cost of living, not on this question of mm. resolving, uh, you know, First Nations, uh, r- the relationship and, and, and reaching a new accommodation. Are you seeing in the data anything that accords with, that sort of adds to that? Because I suppose, you know, there's, there's a fairly high level of people who are not happy, broadly speaking, with um, the direction of the country, yep. which is the kind of thing you often hear said in American politics. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's interesting. So um, we certainly find that those who at the individual level have uh, kind of experienced psychological stress there, certainly more like there's a kind of anti-incumbency uh, impact. So prior to the last election, uh, during COVID, uh, people who'd experienced kind of financial stress, that's one of the groups or the main group which which kind of the coalition lost its support for uh and then um since the election uh that's kind of translating more obviously to to views on the on the labor party um and we certainly do see in our data that 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 argument around focusing on cost of living is it, it appears to be kind of playing out in terms of people's uh, views on a range of issues, confidence in government, mm-hmm. uh, voting intention, uh, satisfaction with direction of the country, and also around the voice as well. So uh, there is a, a sense that uh, people who are, who are struggling are less likely to be kind of supportive of policies or or or, or movements or social movements, I guess, which are um, which less are directly, to them abstract. Yeah, which yeah. are less directly related. And you can understand that. I mean, it, it, it kind of makes uh, sense. But at the same time, I think we, I mean, as you kind of kind of alluded to in in your question, you know, government's pretty big and and pretty. Um, there's a lot of people there. They can they, are, they can do multiple that's, things. That's yeah. why you have yeah. a cabinet. That's why you have a treasurer. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and you have a prime minister. And you and your minister for Indigenous Affairs. So it's it's not like these. There's no evidence at all, of course, that that there's that there's any conflict uh, between a um, a kind of a voice to Parliament and uh, and kind of economic policy. And, and actually, to the to quite quite the opposite, quite, actually. Exactly. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And and certainly we we've, we've shown in in other work that uh, you know Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians are most impacted. Yeah. by a kind of uh, financial uh, impact. So we saw during the, the global financial crisis that prior to that, there was kind of improvement in indigenous employment and, and they kind of fell away a little bit during the global financial crisis. So you can almost see like a, the counter argument is that, well, 
who are some of the population groups which are most likely to be impacted by a kind of financial crisis? Well, one would be Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have mm. less experience in the labour market, more more likely to be discriminated against, uh, less likely to live in in kind of uh, areas with you know highly functioning labour markets. So what's one role of the voice? Well, one role of the voice is to argue to government how to manage that and how to yeah. set up a policy situation where those who are most impacted are protected the most. So I think that kind of walk and chew gum argument is is it doesn't really hold hold. It doesn't it. hold, but into this is that whole thing about you know politics and political messaging yeah. and you know that it's the kind of weaponization of these sorts of things. So yeah. we know that voters like to hear their 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 plight talked about by politicians. Absolutely. And so the argument that your government is not looking after you, you're doing it tough out there in the suburbs or whatever it is, and your government's wondering, you know, prosecuting some sort of uh, high-minded idea over here on something else. Yeah. And that means that they have stopped being interested in your concerns, your hardships, your grievances. And that's And so you might be punitive in in whatever they're doing. Well, and I mean, you know, they're not on the case for you, right? When when absolutely. in fact official policy <laughs> official policy is what is you know what is driving up interest rates. Uh, it's the it's it's the the policy of the central bank to try and control inflation by having high interest rates. I mean yeah. the government's not going to intervene in that or or take a an a, a contrary position. Yeah. Um but but you can sort of see where the political potency of that kind of messaging is. I I really think that the Yes campaign can be really be hurt by the plight of Australians in terms of financial crisis. Um, I was reading this paper this morning, actually, um, there's something about a news poll that shows that Albanese's um, support for Albanese's government uh, went down, mm-hmm. where whereas support for coalition went up as the support for voice slumps, mm. which I thought was quite interesting because is is this argument where you know my government should be looking at mm. you know these things I'm struggling with rather than um, a voice to parliament, like why now, why why this, mm. right? Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if the yes campaign is hurt mm. by by this, because at the end of the day, in a referendum in Australia, everyone votes, yep. and I think the decisive factor comes down to people who are not not really sure or have a lot of information about the voice. And these people might not actually actively go and seek more information. They'd rather be like, why am I voting for this? Or or just simply that they are in a grumpy mood because of yeah, harsh circumstances. I mean, the, you know, the, no one's denying the circumstances yeah. are harsh. That's what your data shows, yeah, right? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. So grumpy voters can mm. tend to be um, somewhat, um, you know, less inclined mm. to Take a punt on something, sure. or to, yeah. or to think. undecided grumpy voters who don't know much about what the voice referendum yeah. is, uh, is seeking who are being, to do, and who are being told, "Celebrate your ignorance. Don't worry about it. If you don't know, vote no." You know, that's the, yeah, absolutely. That's the I mean, I read something about, uh, "Oh, we don't know about what the voice refer- what the voice, the body voice is going to do." You don't want Indigenous Australians to make decisions about submarines. So that kind of like scare campaign or mis- and, and, and disinformation and misinformation going around and I feel like these undecided voters yeah. are quite, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think what, what we can say about this, right, is that in the op- optimal circumstances you wouldn't be running a referendum mm. in uh, circumstances where people are under a lot of financial duress mm. um, because 
you know, obviously it's just not ideal. They're, they're more inclined to be thinking about their immediate problems and perhaps being a bit resentful mm. about, about other things. Whether that's reasonable or not yeah. sort of almost doesn't matter. It's just a fact. Yeah, and I think it does uh, also – it does create a challenge, obviously, for the, for the Yes campaign, but – Challenges can be overcome as well, so yeah, I, I think you would hope so. So I think it's worth kind of keeping in mind that uh, there's there are kind of counter arguments, uh, as, as I said, which which you can make, and having a kind of consistent message, partly about how how the kind of issues are separate, partly about how the voice can kind of work under yeah. uh, under multiple circumstances, yeah. and and how a voice is. It is about managing uh, policy outcomes uh, to improve the lives of yeah. of a group of Australians uh, who are impacted by financial crises and yeah. and and other kind of negative economic circumstances. It's a harder argument to make, uh, and you're right. I think if the Yes campaign or, or or the Prime Minister was able to to kind of sketch out the ideal circumstances, it wouldn't be now. But it's the circumstances he's in. Uh, mm. So I think the challenge is, you know, mitigating some of those concerns, finding a way to to articulate how a voice can work in in multiple economic uh, or, or different economic environments and also i think nullifying some of the concerns about kind of the the financial crisis and or the, the inflation crisis i guess and and part of that is policies which can support people who are uh, finding it difficult uh ways in which the 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 blunt instrument of interest rates is is smoothed a little bit uh and and doesn't kind of fall on on one group disproportionately and and that's a, that's hard that's a hard challenge but that's the that's why you go into politics i guess yeah yeah that's right you meant to manage these mm. things yeah mm. okay look thanks so much for this discussion it's been really interesting and thanks for, for the research uh it, it it's very useful to give us a, a sense of of where we are and mm. and and to make us think about how these uh how these circumstances policies and economic conditions and so forth how they uh, affect people differently mm. uh, and uh, how people view them i guess yep. uh, depending on what their own circumstances mm. are where they live and with whom they 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 uh, they work and 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 socialize and the like so really really fascinating and um keep it up thanks thanks mark thanks mark and that's democracy sausage for this week you've been listening to nick biddle and intifar chowdhury we'll be back next week with uh something else i don't know <laughs> what it is yet but uh stay tuned bye for now <laughs>